Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and this is your Midweek Bible Study 2023 Spring Edition. Welcome to Wednesday, April 19th. Today, we're continuing in our study of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, the last half of the chapter, verses 13 to 22, and we're going to be talking about an awesome topic, dealing with difficult circumstances. There's a lot to talk about today, but before we get to that point, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your amazing love, your incredible provision, your leadership, your watch care, and your forgiveness. God, we just want to sit at your feet and listen to you teach today. So do that from your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Turn with me in your Bible or Bible apps to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. And we're going to talk about this incredible journey of dealing with difficult circumstances. Sometimes we think we really have it bad right now. Well, I have news for you. The early Christians had it a little bit worse than most of us have today. So let's follow along. Again, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 13. This is what it says. Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Christ suffered for your sin once and for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood, and that water is a picture of baptism which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. We've got some really great points to talk about, don't we? All right, let's start with verse 13. It says, Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? The question is, in this verse, Peter asks what seems like an odd question. Who is going to harm you if you're zealous or eager to do good? What does this question really mean? I think one can read this question in two ways. First, those who are eager to do good, even to those who hurt them, are much likely to be mistreated. Certainly in most times and places that's true. And doing good to others rarely inspires their desire for revenge. But as Peter will say in the next verse, Christians may still suffer even when they're eager to do good. Sometimes we can suffer because we're doing good in the name of Jesus. What this question most likely means is that Christians, God's saved, set-apart people secured by him for eternity, cannot truly be harmed by anyone. In other words, Christians may be hurt or even killed for the sake of Jesus in this life, but nobody can take anything from us that truly matters. All of that is secure in the hands of our Father forever. Next, verse 14, it says, But even if you suffer for doing what's right, God will reward you for it. 
so don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Here's the question. What does Peter acknowledge might happen to Christians who seek to do good? I believe Peter is saying that Christians performing good deeds in the name of Jesus may in fact be harmed because they're eager to do good for the Lord. Peter is writing to a group of Christians who probably experienced intense suffering for Christ. Others reading Peter's words today certainly have suffered for the faith. Peter himself was persecuted and killed for Christ's sake. So far in this letter, Peter has made several things abundantly clear. Number one, Christians have a secure and abundant future with the Father in eternity. Number two, Christians are also called to live differently from the world. We are to lead good lives now for the sake of Jesus. And lastly, Jesus, our example, suffered for our benefit, so we should not be surprised to suffer for his sake. In fact, in this verse, Peter writes that to suffer in that way is to be blessed. In other words, it's a privilege. And then Peter references Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, a passage about fearing God rather than men. As Christians, we're called to refuse our natural instinct to be afraid of those who might hurt us for the faith in Christ. We are told to reject our anxiety. We'll find out in the next verse what we should actually do instead of falling into fear. So let's go there. Verse 15, it says, Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Here's the question. In the previous verse, Peter instructed Christians not to fear those who would cause them to suffer for the sake of Christ. In this verse, he reveals how believers should choose to respond. What does he say we should do? First, we should set aside our hearts as the place where Christ is fully honored as the Lord. Peter is writing to people who are already believers. His audience already understands Jesus to be Lord of all. Still, he instructs Christians to focus intently on Christ's role as our master, living as if that were absolutely true in all cases, even in suffering. In other words, Peter calls us to full submission to Christ. When we set apart Christ as Lord, it's going to change us. Peter says those who observe us will notice the difference. That difference is hope. Even in the midst of our suffering, our hopefulness should be apparent. So Peter instructs us to be ready to answer the question, how can we be so hopeful in such difficult circumstances? Peter anticipates people are going to be curious. Hopefulness and joy stand in stark contrast from the normal human response to suffering, so much so that people will be eager to understand it. What will we say when they ask? We have to be prepared to give our defense to make the case for our faith in Christ. We need to reject the cultural pressure to keep our beliefs to ourselves. Instead, believers should openly share the good news of redemption through faith in Christ. The Greek word translated to be ready to explain or give an answer is apologian from the root word apologia. This is not related to the English word apology, where one expresses regret or remorse. Rather, the term means a justification or an answer back or a reason. This is the source of the term apologetics and apologist, which refer to a rational defense of the Christian faith. Next up, verse 16, it says, But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Here's the question. How does Peter say we should share our faith and why is that important? Peter says believers should not be obnoxious, but share their faith in a gentle and respectful way. 
To keep one's conscience clear, it refers to one's personal integrity before God alone, as he or she lives consistently with their knowledge of God. Unbelievers also have consciences that ought to guard their morality and actions. Check out Romans 2 verses 14 and 15. But a Christian's conscience has been transformed by God. The Holy Spirit helps each believer know and understand God's will and sensitizes him or her's conscience to God's desires. All believers should keep clear consciences, but how can they do that? Believers can avoid willful disobedience. If we do disobey, we should stay in constant communication with God, repenting and asking for forgiveness. Each time we deliberately avoid our conscience, we harden our heart. Over a period of time, our capacity to tell right from wrong is going to get less and less. As we walk with God, he will speak to us through our conscience, letting us know the difference between right and wrong. Just by being Christians, these believers could find themselves facing persecutions. They ought not to supply their enemies with ammunition by also breaking laws or acting and speaking in an evil way. If the Christians' lives were above reproach, unbelievers would end up ashamed when they speak against them, and they would realize that they had done nothing more than slander someone's good life. All right, next up, verse 17. It says, remember, it's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. The question is, in this verse, Peter reveals what may be a startling idea for some of us. What is it and what does it mean? The short answer is, it might be God's will that we suffer. Contrary to many false teachers, God's will for the Christian life doesn't always involve wealth, health, and ease. It may require hardship and abuse. Why would God ever want that to happen? Back in chapter 2, Peter explained that our example, Jesus, suffered enormously for our sake. We shouldn't be surprised to be called on to suffer in the same way for his sake. In addition, the previous verses 15 and 16 describe a scenario in which those who persecute Christians may be attracted to our message. Hopefulness in the face of suffering can lead them to conviction of their own sinfulness in causing that suffering. God can use our suffering to bring even our persecutors to faith in Christ, or to prove to others that we, not our tormentors, are following the will of God. Whatever the reason behind God's will, Peter clearly teaches that it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. A Christian suffering for Christ's sake brings blessing, both for us and the world around us. But to suffer for doing wrong means the misery is merely the consequence of our own sin. As a believer, this is especially wicked since it can harm the reputation of Christ in the world. All right, next let's look at verse 18. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. Amen. I just have a comment about this verse, not so much as a question. And it's just this. This verse is a really concise summary of what exactly happened to Jesus when he died on the cross. First, he suffered, which is quite an understatement in the context of a Roman crucifixion. Next, his suffering was for sin, not his own, but ours. And importantly, Christ suffered and died only once. Jesus was the sacrifice for sins, but unlike the annual animal sacrifice of sins in the Old Testament, Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. God required no more blood, no more death. Then Peter reveals that Jesus' sacrificial death 
was as a substitute, the righteous Christ for the unrighteous us. Why did he do it? To bring us to God. Without Jesus' death for our sins on the cross, we could not come to God. Because of it, all who trust in Christ are brought to the Father. What was the result? Physical death, but not permanent death. Following his crucifixion, Jesus was raised to life in the Spirit. Now, Bible scholars offer multiple explanations for what this phrase might mean, especially in light of the following verses. But the most obvious explanation is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead by the Holy Spirit, something clearly taught in the rest of Scripture. Next up, let's look at verses 19 and 20. They read, So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. The question is, Peter has just said that Jesus was made alive in the spirit, and now he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And then he references Noah. What does all of this mean? Over the years, Bible scholars have offered several interpretations of what this might mean. One view is that the verse is simply describing Jesus' physical resurrection from the dead. Another is that it describes a spiritual resurrection which happened before his physical resurrection on that first Easter Sunday. This suggests that Jesus in spiritual form was alive and proclaimed to the spirits in prison before returning to physical life. This may mean anything from those who died before Christ's ministry to fallen angels and a host of other options. But verse 20 sheds a little more light on this by saying that those spirits in prison did not obey when God waited patiently. In Noah's days during the construction of the ark, God waited before saving Noah and his family from the flood. Now note, just as Jesus did in Matthew 24, 37, Peter acknowledges that Noah was a historical figure and Noah's flood was a historical event. So what could Peter possibly be describing in these verses? What does it mean that Jesus proclaimed to spirits in prison who disobeyed during Noah's time during the construction of the ark? Folks, Bible scholars offer several views, depending on who you're going to read. Two of the most popular are that the spirit of Jesus preached through Noah to those living in disobedience during that time. Another is that Jesus went and declared his victory over death to the fallen angels now imprisoned who disobeyed God during that time. Another persistent view, less biblically supportive, is that Jesus traveled in spirit form after his death and before his resurrection to proclaim something to those in Hades or hell that died before and during the flood. All of these views raise a lot of questions, none of which are easily answered. The bottom line here, folks, is that we are not entirely sure what this passage is about, and that's okay. As Martin Luther put it in his commentary on Peter and Jude, and I quote, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain what Peter means, end quote. But what we do know is that Jesus was dead and then made alive, that he suffered and was made victorious by the Father forever and ever. Amen. Next up, verse 21. And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Peter has just concluded several difficult to understand verses with a reference to Noah's Ark. In this verse, 
he writes that baptism corresponds to the water of Noah's flood. Can you explain? Thankfully, we don't have to guess at what Peter means in this verse because he clarifies it for us with the phrase, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. While Peter is connecting baptism with salvation, it is not the act of being baptized that he's referring to, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, as he writes. Being immersed in water does nothing but wash dirt away. What Peter is referring to is what baptism represents, which is what saves us, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is simply connecting baptism with belief. It is not the getting wet part that saves, but the appeal to God from a clean conscience, which is signified by baptism that saves us. The appeal to God always comes first. First belief and repentance. Then we are baptized into Christ. And now for our last verse today, verse 22, it says, Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Our last question today is this. Where does Peter say Jesus went, and what is he doing? Peter says Jesus had gone to heaven, a place beyond the clouds, beyond our human sight. There Jesus is seated, as it says, in the place of honor next to God. Christ has royal power. He has dignity as a result of his resurrection. Check out Matthew 22:44, Mark 12:36, Acts 2:34, Romans 8:34, Colossians 3:1, and Hebrews 1:13. For other references. So the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. That's what that verse says. In this context, these words refer to all spiritual beings in the universe, both good and evil. Everything in earth and heaven is already subject to Christ. One day in the future, when he comes to judge, his power and authority will be made known to every single person. Amen to that. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our study today of 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, another amazing time that it is. Here's a brief recap of what we talked about. This passage began Peter's discourse on suffering, and it had some tough stuff for us to grapple with. A call to endure suffering for doing what is right and good while serving the Lord. But in a sin-infested world, we will sometimes get paid back with evil for our faithful goodness and sincerity. Peter warned us that the realities of the world as those who are not in Christ, even misguided fellow Christians, may come against us in harsh ways because they don't like to be convicted or bothered about their will, mindsets, and sin. So they attack us. The other aspect of this passage was the continual theme that Christ, as our example, did not fight back. Our call is not to pay back evil with evil, and God sees that as a display of trusting in him and as displaying real strength with meekness and self-control. And by being gentle when someone is challenging us with words, deeds, threat, or abuse, by doing that, we show Christ and thus help diffuse the situation and make a huge impact for those who need an example to follow in order to know Christ. Next week, we're going to be studying 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to take a look at the entire chapter, and we're going to talk about living for Christ. Definitely want to be here for that. And if you've missed any of the previous studies thus far, you can catch up right here on this media platform. Thanks for joining me today. I will see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. 
Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.